You're listening to the Dear Baseball Gods podcast. In this show, I help parents, players, and coaches better navigate their baseball careers. All right, welcome back to Dear Baseball Gods. On today's episode, we're going to cover two main topics. Both are a little on the nerdier side. First one is going to be batting average for balls in play. And this is a statistic that you may not have heard of, but it's important to understand, especially as a pitcher. And secondly, we're going to talk about bunting. And we're going to talk about whether bunting makes sense. And we're going to talk about run expectancy and the run expectancy matrix and how that should influence or can influence or maybe should not influence a coach's decision to give the bunt sign. So before we get going, just a reminder, in the show notes of this podcast, you'll find links to my books, you'll find links to my online courses, and you'll find links to my online strength conditioning program for baseball players. So if you're interested in upping your game, finding a new resource for your son or for your players on your team, then definitely check out the show notes below where you'll find, again, all my resources and links to my YouTube channel, my social media handles, all that other stuff. So if you're new here, thanks for listening and definitely check check out the show notes because you know I, I have this big sort of network of content and I hope that you can find the right thing that helps you in your baseball journey. All right, so first thing here, B-A-B-I-P. That's how you'll see this annotated in uh, stat sheets, whatever, but B-A-B-I-P is batting average for balls in play. And this is a stat that measures all batted balls except for home runs. It does not count strikeouts either because it's not a ball in play. And so why B-A-B-I-P is interesting is because it gives you a measure of how well hitters do when they put the ball in play. So it gives you a number just like batting average. So it could be 350 or 362 or 224 or 488. And here's what's really interesting though. Pitchers don't have a good way of controlling their batting average for balls in play. And what this means is, so take someone like Greg Maddox. So the major league average for BABIP is about 300 and plus or minus. Greg Maddox, Hall of Famer, one of my favorite baseball players when I was growing up, his BABIP for a Hall of Fame career is also right around 300. You would think that it would be way less, right? Because he's better than other players, but it's not. So there's a lot of other factors that go into why he was good. Obviously, uh, BIP does not take into account strikeouts and home runs and all that stuff. So basically, when you're getting a batting average for a hitter, that's not taking only balls put in play. It also counts home runs and it counts strikeouts. So if you strike out a ton of people, A, hitters are putting less balls in play, right? So even though the ones that are put in play are 300, hitters might be hitting 200 off you. And that's because you're punching out so many guys when they never put the ball in play. But here's what's interesting about, again, about, about BABIP is that, again, all the, all the sort of statisticians and the people who are really in the know, like if you go to fangraphs.com, which is a great website to get to know sabermetrics or baseball prospectus, uh, hardball times, which is owned by fangraphs. All of them will sort of tell you, like, look, even the best pitchers still are sort of like they gravitate toward the mean here with batting average balls in play because pitchers cannot control where the ball goes after it leaves the bat. And so what BABIP really tells you 
is when you're running really lucky or really unlucky, and this is assuming that you belong at that level. And so let me explain. So if you are an actually like a major league caliber pitcher and you're pitching in the major leagues and say this is like your third season, you held your own, right? You had an average ERA your first two seasons, whatever, but you're clearly a major league caliber pitcher. You start out the season and you're just dominating and your batting average for balls in play is 220. Wow. When guys put the ball in play, they're only hitting 220 against you. Obviously, then you add in strikeouts and they're probably hitting like 160 against you. Um, what all these statisticians say is that is fluky. That is exceptionally good luck for the pitcher. And he will eventually normalize. And it might not take until the very end of the season or might not take that season at all. Like you might have a fluky BABIP where you go a whole season where it's 270 but it's going to come back to the norm because you just can't control that. It was exceptionally good luck. And so wait, and of course this works the opposite way. So you could have a really rough first month. You're like, oh man, why is, why is Clayton Kershaw have such a poor April? Or why does, you know, Max Scherzer also such a slow start? Well, his batting average for balls in play could be like 370. And you're like, well, that's because when they put the ball in play, they're hitting 370 and that's way too high for a major league pitcher. So it's really just he's had a lot of fluky bad luck. And instead of that ground ball being gobbled by the shortstop and he gets an out, it just finds a hole where that blooper finds a hole or that line drive finds a hole. Just more balls are finding a hole um, than normal. And so really the way you start to assess um, how well you pitch is if, if you assume every pitcher had a 300 batting average for balls in play, everyone was exactly the same, then what would differentiate pitchers would be how weak of contact they get so are they giving up lots of doubles or are they giving up lots of singles when they do give up hits because you're going to give up hits and then do they strike hitters out you know if you're striking out nine hitters a game versus four hitters a game you know hitters have a lot more chances to put the ball in play and then they'll thus get more hits because if, if three out of every 10 balls put in play are a hit if you have an extra five balls put in play per game that's an extra 1.5 hits per game so those are all really important factors um, so there's a lot more beyond just um, putting the ball in play. It's knowing, again, like how hard do they hit the ball consistently. So that's an important metric, average exit speed, stuff like that. But it all sort of comes back and, and ties into batting average for balls in play. So this, especially in short season, short sample sizes, and I started catching on to this stat back in, I think, 2015 or 16, really paying attention to it. Um, where I knew that I got some good luck. Like, for example, I was exceptionally good with uh, the bases loaded and with runners in scoring position in general my rookie season. So good, in fact, that it was probably just mostly a fluke. You can't prevent singles only when you're, the bases are loaded. It's not like, oh, you bear down, you focus up. Sure, that, those are real things, but at the end of the day, you really can't control what happens after they put the ball in play. So the fact that hitters were hitting like 150 off me with the bases loaded in my rookie season... Uh, of course, that was 2010, you know, that was really just more good luck for me. And if I had got an extra 20 starts um, that season, then, of course, I got 20 starts. If I got an extra, if I gotten an extra 20, you'd have definitely expected with a larger sample size of bases loaded situations that I was just going to start to like normalize. And that some of that amazing luck that I had, like every time they hit the ball hard with the bases loaded, it, hit, it finds a fielder, that's going to start to run out. Because again, just the law of averages, are gonna things are just gonna average out so the same thing with ball, batting average of balls in play i remember i had a teammate who was having an amazing season after i retired and i was looking him up and i'm like man he's dominating he's still got like a 
0.8 ERA, you know, past the all-star break. And I look up his batting average for balls in play and it's like 170. And I'm like, okay, he's a good pitcher. I mean, he just, he is a good pitcher, but he's getting exceptionally good luck right now. And that's going to run out at some point. It might not run out this whole season because he's a reliever and he's only going to throw 40 innings, 50 innings. But there's definitely a luck component that's helping his amazing season. So it's important to know that not to rain on other people's parades, but just for yourself to say, if you looked at your own stats and, and I did this a number of times, it's like, okay, well, number one, my batting average of balls in play is very high and I do belong at this league. And this was my other point that I need to come back to, which is if you take a 15 year old, a 15 year old boy and put him in the major leagues, he's not going to have a major league average batting average for balls in play, right? Guys are just going to be hitting missiles all over the field and his is going to be much higher than 300, probably like 500. And it wouldn't be fair to say that that was bad luck. That was just, he doesn't belong with that league. So you also have to, you also have to consider, and this is where, when you read a lot of these articles about these sabermetric stats, they're not talking about, you know, high schoolers. They're not talking about youth baseball. They're not talking about amateur baseball at all. They're talking about major league baseball and how all these stats work. And so they're, they, they're not even considering the fact that there could be someone who's just absolutely terrible, who gets promoted. Even if you're, you know, a triple A player and you go up to the big leagues or double A player, get promoted to the big leagues and you get hit around a little bit, you still are like almost a major league caliber player. Um, maybe you just can't quite stick there and you never really stay. And so your batting average for balls in play would probably be a little higher than, than an average established major leaguer, but you still are pretty close. Right. Um, but again, if you took like, and this is where it gets tougher for amateur baseball to apply this because you could have on one fourteen U team, a bunch of pitchers who are very good and at least average for their age. You can have a couple kids like your bottom of your pitching rotation who just aren't very good. And so they might have a batting average of balls in play that's way above normal or average for 14U baseball, but that's because they're really just not good enough. And it's not a fluke. It's just the fact that they're just getting ripped because they're just not that good for 14U baseball. Whereas again, those variations in skill level don't exist as much in the major leagues. Sure, again, a couple guys get lit up when they come up to the big leagues, but pretty much everyone who's a regular up there is pretty pretty close. Like, they're pretty good. Like, sure, some guys have 5.7 ERAs, but it, it's never, like, embarrassing, right? So, again, my point here is at the major league level, everyone sort of normalizes to that, like, 300 mark. That's the major league average for, for uh, batting average for balls in play. But that's also because they're all super skilled major leaguers and the deviations in skill level aren't that huge. Um, but again, at amateur baseball, if you're trying to apply this and look at the numbers, a seasons are so short and, you know, you play a 30 game season and a pitcher gets, you know, 20 innings, he's not going to get a huge sample size where you're going to be able to look at his batting average for balls in play and, and make a lot of meaningful assumptions from it. That's another challenge, even with, again, relief pitchers are a hard one. Because again, looking at my own stats, looking at teammate stats and the example I just gave you with my uh, former teammate who had a great season after I retired. Um, you know, it was just like, it's, it's a, such a small sample size where if you give that guy 400 innings instead of just 40, um, the role of luck is going to be a lot more diminished because the law of averages are going to come back into play. So let's summarize here. Batting average for balls in play or BABIP is all batted balls put on, you know, put into play minus home runs. And again, this does not count strikeouts. That's how it varies from batting average. So batting average includes every every outcome. Um, this does not include batting or uh, home runs or strikeouts. It hovers at around 300 in the major leagues. 
and it's probably significantly higher in amateur ball because um, fielding is just not nearly as good. Of course, batted ball speeds are a lot lower, but fielding is not nearly as good. And again, the main thing with batting amateur balls in play is it sort of tells you whether you're having a fluky performance in either direction, whether you're getting a lot of good luck as a pitcher or a hitter or um, a lot of bad luck. And again, I've been talking about this from a pitcher's perspective, but it also equally applies to hitters. They have a batting average of balls in play. Now, if you hit the ball a lot harder than another hitter, your batting average of balls in play is probably going to be higher than his. Um, but again, if you had a pretty normalized level of play like D1 baseball or a pro or minor league baseball or major league baseball, then again, that batting average of balls in play, which is 300 in the major leagues for pitchers, is also 300 major league for hitters because obviously hitters are the ones who are hitting the ball. So that 300 number, number even though I didn't mention earlier, applies equally to hitters and, pitcher, and pitchers. So again, just expect that to be much more varied in amateur ball. And if you do track this stat on, uh, on Game Changer or any of these other ones, which it does track that, then, you know, just look through it and be interested in it. See if you can find averages. If you're a coach and you have a bunch of seasons of data, it'd be interesting to kind of look at it and see what you get. But it's definitely not going to be 300. It's definitely going to be higher than that. And it's going to be probably difficult to make meaningful generalizations. But as a pitcher or as a hitter, you can use it as a, as a tool to identify whether you're suffering from good luck or bad luck. And if it's bad luck, then you can say, okay, I just need to stay the course. It'll get better. If it's good luck, that you're benefiting from, then you say, okay, I need to continue to really pitch tough and not like pat myself on the back too much because my luck is probably changing and I'm probably getting a little bit lucky right now. And uh, you still need to focus and try to continue to improve and and make quality pitches. And um, so hopefully that was a good overview. BABIP is interesting and it's a stat that's not going away. And it just gives you another piece of the puzzle to understand a pitcher's performance. All right. In the second half of the show today, let's talk about bunting and whether bunting makes sense. And we'll talk a little bit about run expectancy, which we covered in my last podcast episode. So if you're if you jumped right to this episode without catching the previous episode, definitely check that one out about run expectancy. So uh, let's catch up real fast, though, for about what run expectancy means. So run expectancy is how many runs on average. So it's always going to be a fraction pretty much. How many runs on average can we expect from a given base and out state? So a base out state is runners on first and second and one out. That's the, the state of the bases, like how many runners are on base and how many outs there are. So bases loaded two outs is a base out state. No one on, no one out is a base out state. Runner on third, two outs is a base out state. So run expectancy expresses as a number. So 2.29 runs is how many is the actual run expectancy. Um, I can't remember the years of data. It's like four years of major league data that I cited that from for bases loaded and no one out. So bases loaded in with no one out, teams scored on average 2.29 runs in that base out state. So um, here's what's important. Um, and that goes to the end of the inning. So um here's the thing to know with bunting. So bunting has been demonized. They don't really do it in major league baseball anymore. And, and what they've learned and why they've done that is because they basically found out that in a lot of situations that we would commonly sack bunt in, it actually decreased run expectancy for the rest of the inning. And, uh, you know, it's one of these situations where you always do this, assuming that it gives you a better odds of scoring, or it increases the amount of runs that you'll score in general. 
but that proves to not be the case. Let me give you the main three examples here. So if you have first and second and no one out, then you expect to score 0.86 runs on average. That's first and second, no one out. Let me start that over. So runner on first and no out. I'm misreading my notes here. Runner on first and no one out is 0.86 runs. When you bunt that runner to second base, so now you have a runner on second with one out, that base out state yields 0.66 runs. So you lose two-tenths of a run. You go from 0.86 to 0.66, bunting a runner from first to second. Again, that's from Major League Data. All right, and the second common is bunting a single runner from second to third base. And in that case, again, losing an out, you'd go from 1.10 runs down to 0.95 runs. So you're losing uh, 0.15 runs by bunting them over the third. And then the last one, first and second, bunting them both over to second and third, decreases your run expectancy from 1.44 to 1.38. So now how many runs is that, right? 0 0.2, 0 0.15, 0 0.06 runs. Doesn't seem like a lot, but over the course of a long season, especially at the major league level, if you do that over and over and over, you're costing your team you know, five, 10 runs a season, something like that. It could, it could be, that's a lot of bunting. But the takeaway here is you never want to put yourself knowingly in a situation to score less runs as a team, right? That makes sense. Now, the other thing to take into account here is that win probability is, is another factor that you need to, uh, to account for. So now, sure, bunting a runner from first to second uh, with no one out in the in the second inning will just decrease your run expectancy for that inning and is probably a bad move objectively. However, running a runner from first to second in the in the eighth inning when you're it's a two two game and you know you only need one more run and scoring one more run now in the eighth gives you extremely high chance of winning the game. Then bunning your first to sec the runner from first to second in that situation. Yes, it decreases the amount of runs you expect for that inning, but you only need one. You know that because it's late in the game and it does increase your win probability. So the win probability is the other um, metric here that's gonna say how likely is team A or versus team B to win the game. So in that situation, you'd probably ignore run expectancy and say, this is gonna give us a higher win probability, we should do it. So again, that's one way to think about this. And here's the other thing. So when we talk about bunting in the major leagues, it makes a lot less sense because again, um, with the long ball, with extra base hits, you know, with the with the move towards putting the ball in the air and and power, a guy's going to score from first on a double, right? There's more power hitters who we know they're paid to hit the ball far, so they're going to get more doubles and home runs, and and so if you're on first base with a guy like that, a two, three, four, five hitter, it probably makes more sense to stay put rather than bunning into second when a, a double wastes essentially that extra base. Like you don't want to hit doubles when there's a guy on second base. You wanna hit doubles when there's a guy on first base because that's gonna plate him and you're gonna get three bases for that two base hit. So that's the thing to remember. The major league game has changed a lot. There's a lot less, there's a lot fewer singles. And so again, if you have a guy like John Carlos Stanton up and you have a guy on first, he should probably stay put because getting to second base doesn't matter as much because again, the likelihood when Stanton does connect on something that it's it's got a much higher chance of being for extra bases, which will score him from first anyway. So that being said, you have to take into account, number one, who's coming up to the plate, who the, hitter are, who the hitters are, and how you can maximize the amount of bases you get per hit. Like you want, again, you want to score guys from first 
on a double rather than we know you would guarantee score from second on a double. So that's one thing. And the other thing about the major league game is that the outcome is relatively certain when you sack bunt. If you sack bunt, you're going to be out 99% of the time, right? We know what fielding percentage is in the major leagues. It's like 98, right? 980. So we know that even on ground balls, you're out 98% of the time or whatever it is. And so when we're talking about bunting, it's pretty certain that if you sack bunt, you're giving up and out for a base. And that, again, that trade is not a good one a lot of the times. Now at youth baseball, this is where this doesn't apply as much. We all know that in youth baseball, depending on the team and depending on the field and depending on all the runner, all this stuff, bunts, even sack bunts, the outcome is much less certain. You might reach base. If you, if you know, if you had a kid who's average speed for 13U baseball, for example, if you had a kid who's average speed for 13U baseball, even though he like shows early and makes a legit sack bunt, he might still beat it out one out of every six times or one out of every seven times. And I'm, I'm just making that number up. But that seems realistic. If it, you take a 13-year-old who puts on a decent bunt, a decent sack bunt against another team of 13-year-old baseball players, he probably gets the first on at least one out of six or one out of seven. So now that completely changes the complexity or the, com- not the complexity, the complexion of this 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 table because now um, you're getting to first base and you're not giving up that out anymore. And of course, when we're talking about bunting, we're talking about sack bunting. This is really the, the question here. No one's debating really the merits of bunting for a hit. Bunting for a hit is a very opportunistic thing. It should be done by players who are good bunters, and it should be done when the situation dictates. So I told my players my last year as a head coach, look, if you see the third baseman playing behind the bag on his heels, throw down a, a bunt to the third base side. You're going to beat it out if it's even a halfway decent bunt. And if you're a player who likes looking for that opportunity and you're fast and you're a pretty decent bunter, you can get a lot of free hits and getting to first base and not making it out is one of the best is, is essentially the best thing you can possibly do as a ball player. Like outs are, are outs are currency. And when you can, anytime you can reach first base, you've done a really big thing for your team. It doesn't have to be a double, triple or home run. Just not making it out and reaching first base is huge. So, when we talk about the merits of bunting for a hit, they are still the same as a single or a walk. We know there's a lot of merit for getting to first base in general. So a bunt for a hit is just another way to do that. And you only do that again when the defense is napping, when maybe the third baseman is slow, has a bad arm, which you can identify that a lot at youth baseball levels, right? There's a kind of fat, slow third baseman who's just like not going to handle a bunt well. We've all been in situations like that, whereas that situation does not exist in D1 baseball or pro baseball, right? So the merits of bunting are much different at the younger levels, and we have to take those into consideration as well. So the run expectancy thing and bunting, it's just important to understand how they all interact. What does your team look like? Does your team hit a lot of singles? Um, Does your team really struggle to scrape runs across? Is it getting late in the game and it's unlikely that you'll string three hits together, but you did get the leadoff guy on on a hit by pitch or a walk, and now you can bunt them and and maybe we have two chances to get a single to to put us in the lead. That's In that situation, that bunting probably makes sense. But in other situations where it's like, hey, we have a pretty strong hitting lineup and we have our leadoff hitter on in the fourth, we're not going to bunt him to second base to get him in scoring position. We're going to let these three guys swing away because there's a pretty good chance that we get a hit or two. And there's also a chance within there that we get an extra base hit, which is going to score him. So those are the things to consider. And where a lot of uh, managers, coaches, whatever you want to call them, 
in all levels of amateur baseball fall short is that they don't really consider their complexity of or the, the complexion of their whole team, the complexion of the other team, the the hitter, all these other things. The other thing that does matter more in youth baseball is there are some kids who are just like almost a guaranteed out sometimes. Maybe they're just in a terrible slump and they're like mentally defeated. Maybe there's a pitcher on the mound throwing really hard and they've just had like two terrible looking strikeouts earlier and there's like no chance he's going to get a hit the third time up. Those are all you know scenarios we've all seen, right? We just know this kid has like no chance of getting a hit. And that in that situation, any type of bunt probably makes sense because it's better than nothing. And that's not a scenario that, that exists at the D1 level. That's not a scenario that exists in the pro level. Like there just are no players who are guaranteed outs. But sometimes, unfortunately, there are players who are pretty much a sure out, or maybe they're, you know, we could estimate their chance of getting a hit in a certain situation as like one in 20, where it's like, all right, well, we're probably better off just like seeing if he can put a bunt down. And then his chances of getting to first base are probably better than one in 20. So that's a big part of this discussion. Now, should you bunt? You know, for a lot of young players who are scrappy, if you see yourself as being a second baseman, shortstop, center fielder at the college level, you should learn how to bunt and you should be good at it. It's an impressive, um, it's an impressive skill. Scouts like to see that. They like to see players who know how to play the game, who can read a defense, who are fast, who have good back control, and who have good in-game IQ. If they see a player drop down a bunt because the third baseman's playing really far back and get an easy free hit, that's a plus. That's a plus for any college scout watching. Because he says, man, this kid is, is, is actively engaging with the game. He's not just going up there trying to see how hard he can hit the ball. He's a ball player. And the game, especially the amateur game, needs if they need anything, they need more ball players. That's it for today's episode of Dear Baseball Gods. I'd greatly appreciate it if you'd subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget, in the notes of this show, you'll find links to my pitching manual, Pitching Isn't Complicated, my memoir, Dear Baseball Gods, my online video pitching courses, and my new baseball strength training program called Early Work. You can sign up right now for a free 14-day trial to Early Work, and if you're interested in one of my online courses, you can save 20% on any one of them using the promo code BASEBALLGODS. Thanks again for listening, and stay on your hustle. You never know who's watching.